we are on with representatives from groups or communities in three different cities and also someone with a website about slow streets. These three communities are fighting for complete streets or protected bike lane. We have Karen Parolik from Berkeley, California. Hi, Karen. Hi, good morning. Lucy Maloney from Vancouver. Yeah. And Ricardo Morales from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And then we have Luke Bornheimer, who has a website on slow streets. I'd like to go around and talk about the different situations in each area. And I'd like to just start and go with uh, Karen to Lucy to Ricardo, and then we can talk to Luke. Sounds great. Thanks. Uh... So we're working on a project on Hopkins Street. Berkeley in 2017 passed um, a new bike plan that was really focused on providing safety for all ages and abilities across the city. And Hopkins is one of the streets um, that was identified for a complete street. Um, and uh, most of Berkeley, we have a, what's called a parallel bike network where there's a, to any major car thoroughfare, there's a parallel street that's been identified as a bike boulevard where we try to limit traffic volume and um, and enable that as a primary bike route. But in certain areas of town, the grid falls apart and there are single streets that don't have a parallel route that can be used. And so those streets need to be complete streets to be able to accommodate you know, all different uh, people on all different modes. Um, and so Hopkins Street is one of the first ones that we're having to tackle that as a, as a full complete street. Um, and it is a key east-west connector. East Berkeley is historically our wealthier neighborhoods up in the, um, it's called the hills here in Berkeley. And West Berkeley is historically our red-lined and yellow-lined areas of, of Berkeley um, along the water where the freeway is. Um, and this uh, street, Hopkins Street, uh, we are trying to do a full complete street. So the design has uh, pedestrian improvements, it has transit improvements, um, and, uh, and it also has a protected two-way uh, bike lane, two-way cycle track along the entire length is being proposed. Um, and um, we are, it is a key safe route to school. Our city's largest middle school is along Hopkins Street. It uh, has, right now has a thousand students at it. It's a lot of students in addition to another elementary school, a private middle school and elementary school and a private high school. So four schools plus preschools. There's a beloved neighborhood center with a wonderful little historic, you know, two block main street with a little market and a meat shop and a fish shop and a bakery, um, a little coffee shop, really wonderful also along this um, stretch along Hopkins. So wonderful amenities. There's a park, a track, a pool, a library. Um, it's a wonderful street. It's about a mile and a half long to east from east to west. Um, and um, it's a critical connector to all of those things. So we are trying to get the entire complete street design approved with all of the pedestrian improvements um, and transit improvements and the protected bikeway. Um, and because we're really focused on all ages and abilities and particularly things like families and kids getting to middle school. We also have a, a number of older riders. My a new neighbor that just moved in for his um, 75th birthday got one of those adult tricycles. Um, and uh, so we have riders of all ages and creating a protected bikeway is really critical for them to feel comfortable out on the streets. I'll stop there. We can talk more about it later. All right. Well, look, I can start talking about what's happening in Vancouver then. Um, we're, we're doing a real mix of uh, initiatives in Vancouver. I mean, we've got a, a pretty well-established cycling network <coughs> that <coughs> needs a bit of work in especially south and east Vancouver. I mean, I'm sure you all have parts of the city that get a lot of attention in terms of bike lanes and other parts that are a bit neglected. So our, our downtown network is looking really good on the downtown peninsula of um, Vancouver. And there are a few good things happening there with um, the Granville Connector project, which is one of the three main bridges across False Creek in Vancouver, is finally getting its separated bike lanes and we're getting some um, freeway removal for housing, which is really wonderful. There are two um, circular off-ramps that are going to get 
deconstructed and we'll see a little bit more pedestrian infrastructure and cycling infrastructure there. So that's super exciting. And there's been some progress on um, slow streets, which was a pandemic initiative in Vancouver. And uh, those were initially those, you know, those plastic barriers that they fill with water, but they don't fill with water. And then you can just move them out of the way really easily. Well, that was happening a lot. So that was super frustrating for um, cyclists and pedestrians trying to use the slow street network because, of course, a few angry motorists would push them out of the way. And now they're being um, replaced with concrete barriers and uh, uh, made a little bit more difficult to move. So so that's sort of on top of the, the cycling network or as well as we've got this slow street network that's um, being made more permanent and durable, which is a, a real improvement. And that what did did spring out of the pandemic, but, you know, so did a lot of good things. Uh, the pandemic really just hurried up a, a whole bunch of stuff. So although people complain that temporary stuff is always being made permanent, well, it was, it should have already been there before the pandemic anyway. So um, bad luck, it's an improvement to the city. Uh, we've also got, um, we're, we're in the initial stages of pushing for pedestrianisation of some sections of the city, especially narrower streets that are real tourist areas like in Gastown and in Yaletown, two parts, older parts of, uh, of Vancouver downtown. There's so much potential for pedestrianisation of restaurant areas and bar areas. So we, we really need to keep pushing for that. And we've also got our school streets program, which I'm particularly interested because my school's been running a school street adjacent to the bike entrance, one block of one street outside. Our school has been a a school street at pick up and drop off time. So cars have been excluded from that block on one of our um, greenways. And that's been running at our school for two years with very long suffering, tiny volunteer army um, keeping that going. And we're really pushing to hopefully get that made permanent so we can save 15 plus hours a week of volunteer time of, of harried parents who have enough other things to do and, and try and just get some get some concrete happening there as well because that's been running um, on the sniff of an oily rag to use an unfortunate automotive metaphor um, for two years and and with always the the view of permanent infrastructure at the at the end of the, being the light at the end of the tunnel so um, that gives you a little bit of an overview of what's happening in Vancouver uh, Lucy I thought you were going to mention uh, Stanley Park <laughs> I'm really emotionally scarred from that fight, but I will mention Stanley Park. Yeah, look, just very quick update on Stanley Park. Unfortunately, we um, have lost a pretty big battle recently to keep the temporary pandemic bike lane in place. It's still there for the moment, but it's going to be ripped out. Some um, remnant sections are going to be kept in place and um, there's um, the promise of a permanent bike lane being put in again but it, it's all a little bit nonsensical because what they could do is make what's currently there slightly more permanent even on the less busy part of the park but that's not the decision that was made in the last couple of weeks by the park board and there's um uh, a a vague plan to put in a permanent bike lane at some stage in the future but it's um very unfortunately ridiculous because they are proposing to um, cut down trees and extend the pavement so that there's a bike lane plus two general vehicle lanes instead of a bike lane plus a vehicle lane. And um, I really hope that they change their mind about that because um, uh, putting in an extra general vehicle lane would require um, millions and millions of dollars of unnecessary expenditure that would do nothing more than create, uh, induce more car traffic into the park um, at a great waste of taxpayers' money that could be spent on um, helping uh, to fund our libraries and community centres and every other thing that the municipal municipality should be spending money on. So bad news with Stanley Park, but we're still working on it. Also, we suspect that they might be proposing something so expensive just so that it never gets done, right? 
yeah, well, I'm, I, people are telling me that, but I'm an eternal optimist and I believe in their good hearts somewhere in their, in their chests and, and I'm just going to keep helping them make the right decisions. Well, I'm also an eternal optimist. And um, first, I, I want to just quickly introduce Pittsfield, Massachusetts, to listeners and, and to the panel here. Um, we, we are a small city of 44,000 residents. Um, you know, it could be described as any city uh, that used to be a major um, geographical location where uh, large manufacturing was happening and in, it declined in the 80s and 90s and it's starting to see some rebirth of uh, you know the way we operate and that reflects also in the transportation and and you know we definitely are behind in some of the efforts that we we see across the nation uh, in larger metropolitan areas but we in in Pittsfield are starting to sell this notion that we can be like those big cities uh, in a, in a sense, right? We are not to be left behind. We can also have safe streets streets for everyone. We can also protect the most vulnerable. And so, we with that in mind, I you know the city in 2017 adopted the complete streets policies, um, part of the part of the uh, state's program, Massachusetts program. And it, it, it had a very slow start, but with that program, we started prioritizing projects and we started uh, applying for, for funding. Um, the pandemic put some, some hold on implementing actual projects until uh, 2021. Um, but it was very interesting because things that were not being planned with more lengthy or the more lengthy process actually came to fruition much faster because of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, case in point is on our downtown, the spine of the downtown, uh, if you were to pick a, ch a shape, would be an L. Um, and on one leg, it's, it's about three quarters of a mile. The other leg is about one mile. And that first three quarters of a mile is North Street, uh, Pittsfield. And then on North Street, we because of the pandemic uh, and uh, an opportunity from the state to use divert funding under a program called Shared Streets for All, um, we uh, took the opportunity to eliminate, do a massive road diet, took took down two lanes of travel, um, and added protected double buffered bike lanes, buffering them on either side for from parked vehicles and from moving traffic. And with that effort, you know, the, the three quarters of a mile of the downtown, we're, we had plans to connect it to the rest of the bicycle infrastructure we have in the city, which is, it is scarce, admittedly, but it's shaping, you know, uh, according to our master plan for bicycle facilities. And um, uh, with that came a lot of, um, uh, you know, forceful uh, uh, thoughts from the community um, that we were doing things too fast and that we were not doing the right things. Um, and to, you know, still now we are talking about these things despite um, having seen how successful this, this has been. Um, on the other hand, we're, you know, connecting the other segment of the downtown. The It's called the Tyler street um, section. Uh, it's flanked by, community schools, the Pittsfield's uh, largest park, it's called Springside Park, and several neighborhoods that could fall under that category of, you know, neglected, uh, historically lower income neighborhoods. And we are dedicating some efforts and, and funding to revitalize that, doing some streetscape work, adding some, uh, again, traffic calming measures, installing bump outs and adding bike lanes, bike boxes, two stage turn boxes, all these terms that people get um, uh, their heads spinning. We added a mini roundabout at the, at the end to signalize that you're entering into a, a space that is meant to be a slower space. With that all together, you, we also have a countywide, the county if you imagine it, it's a very much a north south county. And this bike trail travels north-south 
Right now, it stops in Pittsfield, but we have we're continuing it on the north end, uh, on the north side of Pittsfield where it stops, continuing it south, and we have plans of connecting that with the rest of the downtown and eventually going into south, uh, the southern part of Pittsfield, and continuing south into the rest of the county. So we're connecting it, the downtown area, with the rest of the county in that way. From there, branching out into the different neighborhoods around Pittsfield, around the central part of Pittsfield, which is the, the urban, the most urban, you know, densely populated area. All that following the, the the bicycle facilities master plan, which we try to apply with all of our work that we do on an annual basis to repave and you know uh, enhance our our infrastructure with our uh, road work. We add bike lanes with that and trying to make this this pocket of, uh, in a very rural county, adding a pocket of uh, modernized transportation network. Good, Ricardo. Thanks. And Luke, do you want to say what you have going on? Yeah. Thanks, Nick. I am based in San Francisco, and I am an advocate here for safe, sustainable transportation through things like protected bike lanes, car light streets, and car-free streets. And most recently, I created a website, slowstreets.us, to initially raise awareness for people in San Francisco about our Slow Streets program, which recently became permanent, actually was made permanent in our transportation code. And so the initial thought was raise awareness about that and help people organize and advocate for more Slow Streets, a connected network of Slow Streets, and very specifically, better physical infrastructure in the roadway in order to make uh, slow streets safer and more successful for sustainable mode shift um, and community building. And so that was the initial thought. As I put it together, I realized, hey, there's a lot of programs from around the country, around the world that have similar slow streets, healthy streets, open streets, you know, super blocks. They have various names, but they're all shared street concepts. Um, and so I, I kind of created a page for that. And, and now it's kind of morphed into a uh, inspiration point for people to say, hey, what are people doing around the country? What was done? You know, some of the programs have been unfortunately ended. Some have made permanent. Some are still in this kind of limbo state. And so that's where it's at. Um, that's what the website's there for. Um, and so, you know, both for people in San Francisco and around the world to engage in this, in this, you know, not new concept, but but new at least to the United States and North America that we can have shared streets. We can use streets for more than just our throughput. Um, and so that's that's my hope in that and, and helping to organize people here and around the country and around the world to advocate for, you know, better, more sustainable uses of our streets. Okay, let me summarize. We have Karen Prolick in Berkeley. Their organization is trying to get complete streets on Hopkins. There's some equity issues. There's a lot of schools on the street and it's all happening right now. The campaign is in full, full swing. And then we have Lucy and Vancouver. The fight for Stanley Park Drive has been, I don't know if we would say lost, but we kind Mine of- Minor setback, we call it. And, and then in Pittsfield, we have a whole lot going on with Ricardo Morales. Are you the- I'm the commissioner of public works. I used to be the city engineer and uh, since the pandemic, the commissioner. And then we have Luke Bornheimer, who's got a website on slow streets, shared streets, healthy streets. What I'd like to talk about, since it seems like people are encountering the same kind of opposition everywhere in the entire world, is what is going on? Why is it that people are uh, against safety? And... I don't even know if that's the right question. Maybe understanding why they're against safety isn't the important thing. Maybe it is. What's the opposition like? I've been doing organizing advocacy here in San Francisco for over two years now um, and got really involved with uh, car-free JFK or what's now known as JFK Promenade Golden Gate Park um, and, and also in um, Great Highway Park, which is a former parkway along our you know, western coast, along Ocean Beach, um, along the Pacific Ocean. I've done organizing and advocacy throughout our city and on different things, car light spaces and car free spaces. And I will say the thing that sticks out to me, I try to empathize with people who 
oppose these things or unsure. And I think ultimately what this boils down to for a lot of people is, is change is hard for humans, particularly with transportation and mobility. Um, people kind of take for granted how they get around. And unfortunately for us, for our society, for the planet, we have for decades prioritized the convenience and throughput of private automobiles and the storage of private automobiles on public space. And so invariably, we must adapt. We must improve these spaces. We must change. Our environment must change. And that is hard for humans. And, and I think that, that's at the core of a lot of this. It's just people are resisting change and they will say a variety of things of why that change is unnecessary and bad, but ultimately it boils down to this is change and it's scary. And that's, that's understandable. And that is not a reason to not make the improvements that we need to make to make our streets safer, to make our cities more livable and to frankly save our planet. I agree with everything you're saying, Luke, except I thought adaptability was the defining trait of our species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, except I think, I think transportation is a very special thing. As a species, yes, those things can coexist. Adaptation takes more than one lifetime. <laughs> oh. It's interesting because in my, I'm here as part of uh, the co-founding coordinating committee member of Walk Bike Berkeley, an advocacy group here in Berkeley. Um, I'm also chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Commission here in Berkeley. I'm not here in that role today, um, but I don't do that. But in my day job, I actually work with communities across the country on, on walkable neighborhoods and what that makes. And we do a lot of work in housing. And so our, our firm is the company that came up with the concept of missing middle housing. And it's the exact same resistance that's happening in the housing conversations that's happening in the transportation sphere. It's the exact same thing. And it has to do with, I, I think it has a lot to do with like the images people get in their heads about who this is for and what it looks like and how it's going to work. With the missing middle housing, it was before people were barely talking about zoning, but you know, somebody would say the word density or up zone and people get a picture in their head of, oh my gosh, this is downtown Manhattan coming to my small village, right? And what we did with missing middle housing we hadn't intended to talk about, but it's making me realize, is we put different pictures in their head about actually places that they know and love that is what we're talking about. How do we house more people? We changed, we reframed the conversation about what it looks like to house more people in, in low-rise, you know, walkable neighborhoods. And I think I, I've been trying to like transition that into the my trans transportation advocacy work is how do we like, because I do, you know, the resistance we're getting here in Berkeley. Uh, it is definitely this kind of what what one of my um, co-committee members, Ben Gerhard Stan, mentioned last time about this like liberal blind spot for cars and how cars, um, you know, but I think it's actually the same blind spot for single family homes. It's a very, it's fascinating to me, the parallels happening here. And it is this blind spot, again, for a certain interpretation of what the American dream was. You got your single family home with your big yard and your two and a half kids and your dog and your cat and, and your, you know, two cars and your boat, you know, right? And which is not actually the true American dream. The American dream was about coming to a place of religious liberty to pursue a life of freedom. But we've been sold this vision and the car and the house are, are a big part of that. And so that resistance, it, you know, it's it, we have to tell people different stories about what it means to be free. And and this transportation, we're getting we're getting resistance um, from people that just don't realize how pervasive and how how the design of our entire communities have been signed around the car and have never been forced to think about it differently. Um, and and we're also getting resistance from people that that you know know to say the right things. They know they know that we need different mobility choices. You know, Berkeley is a liberal haven and talks about the climate emergency, declared a climate emergency, but they're unfamiliar with the tools that it takes. And and they are if they don't come up with the idea, they're resistant to it. And if they don't get enough information and they don't have enough data and they haven't seen it themselves right? They're just in, in some ways, it's a very, um, a very academic group that like, 
you know, even if you put a survey in front of them, they're going to question how the survey was taken and whether the metrics were right. Like, it's fascinating the 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 breadth of resistance that we get when we start to say, "Hey, look, we need to do things a little differently." I have some ideas about that. I couldn't agree more strongly that um, change is difficult for people, and the way we see that manifesting in active transport resistance is that I think driving is already so miserable, so miserable that people just see all these initiatives that we're trying to get in place as um, making their lives more difficult. So removing on-street car parking, installing bike lanes, um, people don't realise that it will help them. They don't realise that the streets are made safer for everybody, including drivers, when we put in separated bike lanes. You know, they don't see that they'll travel overseas to Italy to visit a pedestrianised street, but they are resisting having one on Water Street in Vancouver, even though that would be the biggest tourist attraction and so good for the locals. You know, people... People just see that from the point of view of over their steering wheel and how hard it is for them to find a parking spot. And some of it, I think, is elite projection as well amongst our decision makers, especially our, you know, municipal elected officials. You know, they are comfortably housed and they drive their car everywhere. Um, Not a lot of them are cycle commuters or using transit. So they they sort of think that their common sense from their perspective is what works for everybody else as well. So um, you know that's changing quite a lot in Vancouver. We've got a few elected officials that are cycle commuters and, and are seeing things from a slightly different perspective. But I, I think elite projection is a huge, huge problem in, you know, what people consider to be acceptable decisions like that, um, you know, they the people that sponsor political parties or are friends with political um, elected officials are people that live in a single family home and drive a car. So we've got to overcome that. And I think the last thing that strikes me is that people don't understand the way traffic works. People think that there's a fixed amount of cars and that when you put in a separated bike lane or pedestrianise a street, that that number of cars has to go somewhere. They don't realise that traffic is simply the product of our decision-making and that we all take into account the cost and the convenience and safety and what we expect traffic congestion to be like. You know, I'm constantly talking about the hockey game at Rogers Arena and how people who would normally drive a car if they thought it was convenient will um, take the, the subway train because they know that it'll be a pain in the butt to get home and get there otherwise. And so I'm explaining and explaining and explaining that and I'm hoping that one day people mainstream people will move the Overton window so that um, people understand that it's actually really in the best interest of everybody to um, put in place these um, bike lanes, extra transit, pedestrianised zones, school streets, all the things that we know is best for everybody, but uh, we've just got to tell the story and convince people and make them see things a different way. I couldn't agree more with all that you guys have said. Oftentimes we, especially for me, working in a municipal government, uh, you know, local government in this bubble of, you know, solving the problems we have, solving the issues that we know people are using elsewhere, but how how we address the issues that our community is having, uh, oftentimes without thinking that, this is a problem that's happening everywhere. And when we start seeing not just where the problem is happening now, uh, but also the places that had that problem decades ago and fixed it and pointing to people that have this notion of what should be right, how transportation should be working, pointing to them like, you remember the trip you took several months ago to Italy? You loved it. What did you love about that? And you start framing that conversation around those places did not get to where they are just because of where they are, right? It's because of the decisions people made one after the other in the right direction to make it a great place. And we can make those same decisions here. We can make those same decisions everywhere in, in, in the U.S., in our cities, in, 
you know, in Canada too, of course. Getting to that place, it is challenging. It's bridging that notion and reframing the perspective for those that are uh, looking for ways to see the world the way it works for them now and asking them, how can the world work for you in a different way that works better for everyone else as well? It's, it's very difficult, but we, we have to take that challenge and, and tackle it. I'm glad that we have people like everyone here that we can you know, rely on, people that you know, study this, that research all this, that we can draw upon, and we don't have to rely on ourselves waking up one day thinking, aha, I'm going to do, I'm going to put a uh, bike lane in this corridor with these dimensions that someone, we have so much, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants that came before us to get these things done. Uh, We're not here alone. And, and I think that's the community mindset we have to take to tackle these issues. Transportation to me seems unique the challenge that we face, but the, also the opportunity is that the people who will benefit and use sustainable transportation are largely, almost entirely, the people who are already in our cities. And so our challenge is that almost all of those people can't fathom a future where they don't drive their car for everyday transportation. But the benefit and, and an opportunity is that they are already there. The challenge for us is getting people to consider that maybe possibly some of my trips I might not drive. And and we know from data and cities and examples around the world that people will be happier. Our cities will be more livable, more sustainable. Uh, The challenge is getting more and more people to say, maybe I could be one of those people. Or even maybe my neighbor will be that person. I need to drive everywhere. But maybe my neighbor will be that person. Driving will be easier for me. Well, you all touched on all my all my notes here. Karen talked about, among other things, how data itself will not be enough because people will overcome data. Uh, Lucy, you talked about how to show how complete streets, safe streets are better for drivers too. And Ricardo, you talked about, among other things, how good it is to know that other people are doing what you're doing. Uh, Luke, you you are embodying what I'm. What, my final point, which is, uh, what kind of support group can we use? Uh, so you've got a website. Is that something that everybody's going to jump on, or you all want to start a phone tree? Say, so I, I have it open right now on my second. <laughs> I can say, you know, in San Francisco, roughly two years ago, one of the things I noticed. So, you know, I, I've had some history in organizing for advocacy efforts for a while. Um, and one of the things I noticed is a lot of people on Twitter kind of complaining about things or wanting things. And it wasn't leading to actual like on the ground progress. And so I created, you know, I use Slack, but I created an online community where people could discuss these things and where I organized many of these advocates. And that has been honestly transformational for San Francisco and for the advocacy community because it, it connects people who are doing all these different disparate things together, it also allows people to become aware of other projects. Because ultimately, as we all know, people care about that thing closest to home. And if all of a sudden they know, oh, somebody's working on that other thing, I can help a little bit with that, or I can help spread word about that. Um, so that has been invaluable. It's something that I would suggest. And, and it doesn't need to be Slack. It could be a Google group. It could be Discord. I mean, it could be whatever works best um, for your city, for your community. But it has been invaluable you know, also just to connect people and make them feel like they're part of a community. Yeah, I think that it's important to use a whole bunch of different methods to organise. You know, I, uh, I've i uh, had to start behaving myself on Twitter a bit more because I've got a whole bunch of elected officials following me. So I uh, definitely tone down the swearing. Um, but I reach a whole bunch of people through in- uh, Instagram and that's not my natural habitat, but I make a real effort because I, I've got a much younger group of people that are on Instagram and that are really responsive and you know we've got a really good discord group on a whole bunch of kind of urbanist topics and I'm in the walk ride roll section of that quite often and get a lot of support there we've got a really great very big email list through the formal cycling advocacy group called hub cycling and I'm not 
formally involved with hub cycling, but I work closely with, with those people on to know what our priorities are and what we should be pushing. And then just my own informal groups. So I, I use a multi-pronged approach. If I've got something to get done, I've got a whole bunch of ways of getting it done and that reaches a whole lot of different people. I think shared resources are really important, you know, for, for two different reasons. We're finding that it's really important to talk about not only why the status quo doesn't work, but what the future could look like, to envision what the future could look like. And again, when people have images in their head already, it's hard to counter that unless you actually have pictures or drawings, right? And drawings are expensive to get done, right? It's hard, a lot of cities don't have the, 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 the budget to be able to hire professionals to come in and do this. And even a lot of the professionals in the space are engineers, not necessarily, you know, urban designers and visualists. And so having a resource where other cities, you know, I'm constantly searching for examples in other cities that I can show pictures of to calm people's fears. And so having shared resources around, you know, successful projects that have been built um, so that others of us can use those images to give examples of, you know, what it looks like, but also that this has happened in other places. You know, we often get complaints about, we don't want to be the guinea pigs here. You know, we don't want you to try think new things here, right? And so we can say, no, this has been, you know, tried before. I think that kind of sharing of that imagery and then also knowing then if we had like even a list of successful projects with some in imagery, with some contact info, then when we get to the point of like, you know, with our, you know, our two-way uh, cycle track on Hopkins, there are a lot of residential driveways. So we're getting pushback about people worried about pulling in and out of their driveways. And so if I can find three other projects, like even one other project like that, that's been done that I can then contact that advocate. How did you get past this issue, right? How did you talk about this issue? Um, or other issues, you know, we got some great advice from our friends in Alameda about how they really focused on the, um, the you know, who, the vote, right? You know, there's so much you can do around public involvement and education, but in the end, it comes down to a council vote, right? And so they put all of their efforts in on the mayor, right? And so hearing that kind of um, you know, being able to have conversations with other advocates about what worked for a similar type of project would be invaluable um, for those of us on the ground who are all mostly doing this volunteer, mostly doing this, you know, in our spare time. So I, I think something like that would be it, incredibly helpful. I think it's uh, interesting the way you mentioned um, involving our shared resources to promote visually what our ideas will ultimately become. And I think because of what you mentioned before, it seems like you're also implying that doing studies and analyzing and presenting data is not enough. And, and that's why it was one of the topics here by, by Nick. It's proven that people just get lost in the numbers for some reason. And um, maybe even here, we don't, all of us, like I do, love the data and visualizing uh, information in that way. But despite telling us very good information, it does tend to have that flaw. And we definitely felt that in Pittsfield. We included the buffered bike lane on the downtown. We included part of the project was a full study right after um, the first year of implementation. And, you know, it, it portrayed that we had a reduction in crashes and collisions, about 70 percent um, increase in bicycle ride. We made some additional notes compared them to the rising collisions around the state and around the, the city elsewhere, contrasting that with much more importance. And that's just seemed to fly over people's heads and it doesn't matter. And, you know, despite you telling people bicycle infrastructure is really car infrastructure, you know, crosswalks are really not for pedestrians or for vehicles. So like we're doing these things to make that mode of transportation safer for those using them against vehicles to protect them against the most dangerous part of the road. When we frame it that way, you start getting some people understanding, but it's making those stories. I think it's very important to capture people's imaginations or trying to rein in people's imaginations in, into visual stories. And I think some good tools for that are the GIS story maps. Um, we tend to use that a lot. Um, and we have people on the in the city here that are versed with that. And we, we use that for, you know, community engagement and sharing what this can look like in terms of a 
you know, timeline stories, scroll through. Yeah, I got some good advice recently from a mentor who told me don't bring facts to an emotion fight. And we're all fighting emotion fights. What Karen's talking about with um, storytelling and helping people to visualise a different future is so important. You know, we're trying to get our school street made permanent. You know, we want to talk about photogenic children having opportunities to frolic through their neighbourhoods with freedom and independence. You know, we don't want to concentrate on statistics about car parking revenue. So, yeah, we've got to really tell stories. And this same uh, mentor also pointed me to resistance school because I was particularly interested in how do I apply that good advice about not bringing facts to an emotion fight to my advocacy. And uh, yeah, look up resistance school. There's just, it's a fantastic resource for advocates. Okay, we'll do. And so let's uh, go around. And since this is bike talk, we'll end with a bike joy. And everybody uh, take a moment to reflect on a time that they've experienced bike joy. I can well, jump in. I mean, I spend a lot of time um, cheering people up. I think there are a couple of examples in Vancouver that really show that things are hopeful and things are improving, like things are improving too slow. But I've got two examples. So 15 years ago, there were bike lanes put on Burrard Bridge, right? Separated bike lanes. And the mayor got death threats. We thought it was going to be the end of the world. Now, even semi-conservative people admit that it was the best decision and no one would ever in their right minds rip out these separated bike lanes. And there was virtually no fight to put separated bike lanes on Granville Bridge, which is over a little bit. It wasn't even really a fight. You know, Beach Avenue Bikeway got put in and no one's proposing to rip that out, even conservative politicians, because we're getting 15,000 bike trips a day on peak days in summer. It's one of the most highly intensely used um, bike lanes in North America, definitely the most popular one in Vancouver. And, um, you know, we had a separated bike lane called Hornby Street that went in 10 or so years ago, or maybe a bit more, that was a big fight, massive fight. But Richard Street, which is parallel a few blocks over, is this beautiful, beautiful bike lane that got put in in the last two or three years. And there wasn't a fight for that. So, you know, you have the big fights. But then people realize the world didn't end, and then it gets a little bit easier each time. I can go next. Where I sit during my day job, I can see one of the intersections in our downtown where we installed the bike lane. Since we installed it, I every time I see, especially when I see a parent riding with their son, with their daughter, with their kid, either alongside them or on a seat behind them, I rejoice. I stand up. I look out the window. I'm clapping there by myself like, yes, you go. Enjoy the bike lane. Be safe. That's me when I'm with my son doing that. My daughter is too big and so she would be riding on the side. But then also very recently with all the controversy surrounding the bike lane around here and some efforts to take that uh, bike lane out and re install two lanes of travel in each direction. There was this uh, moment at open mic and, and Nick, I, I believe you had her on the podcast recently, 90 year old retired teacher from Pittsfield here. She was extremely lovely. Her message talking about, she doesn't ride a bike right now, but she was just saying, if a 90 year old can navigate North street, then essentially let's not keep fighting about this like she said she used better words but it, it was so amazing uh moment i was there in the room when that happened and i looked at her like i want to be like that person when i'm 90 years old and that was an incredible moment i would say i love that story and that anecdote for me two things come to mind one i helped to start sf bike bus here in san francisco for kids and families to bike to school and I've helped to organize a variety of bike buses around the city. And I think seeing kids and families bike to school and feel the, the freedom and the joy specifically and the freedom and the joy seen in other people's faces, seeing people bike to school, even if it's not part of a bike bus, it's an uplifting and inspiring thing to see that you're like, there's something here that this changes the conversation from what people have historically thought of as like, oh, it's just a 
able-bodied guy who wants to bike and that's all the bike lanes for that's one thing and the other one is you know car free jfk promenade was a very long drawn out fight it was a political fight to get it to be made permanent and, and permanently 100 percent car free um, there was a lot of efforts to try and water it down cut the road in half split roadway one-way roadway parking on one side the joy moment for me that I hope I could instill in any other advocate listening is that there were many times where people suggested we should water it down, we should compromise, because going for the full thing, you're going to lose it all. And I think it's really critical for advocates and organizers to remember that our role as advocates is to push for the ideal. We are not the policymakers, we are not the decision makers. They're the ones who will ultimately compromise. And so it's our role as advocates to say what the ideal is because those policymakers need to hear what the ideal is so that they can decide, am I gonna lead and go for the ideal? Am I gonna compromise? It is joy for me to think back on it and think we held the line. I helped to hold that line and say, no, this we want it to be 100% car free, 24 seven, no cars, that's, that's it. And, and there's many reasons why we do that. You know, we got 70% of, of residents in support on a survey. And then when it went to the ballot, because as will happen many times in the decades ahead, opponents took it to the ballot and it passed 65, 35, like just not even close. And, and mind you, there was millions of dollars spent on this ballot measure. Like it shouldn't have been that much of a blowout. That is joy to me that we went for the ideal and we got it. Amazing stories. You just mentioned joy and bikes and my whole, I, my whole body lights up. I just, you know, being on my bike is my happy place. And I love being in my city. I live in Berkeley. I work in Berkeley. I raise my kids in Berkeley. And being in the city, it provides so many opportunities when you're on a bike to meet other people. You know, we were stopped at a really important intersection. We've been focused on for all, all of our parallel bike boulevards, focused on improving the intersections across kind of major thoroughfares. So, you know, they're, they're fairly quiet streets most of the way, but we have to get across the thoroughfares. And then there's this wonderful new bike and pedestrian crossing light that we put in right next to one of our uh, major transit stations. And I was sitting there waiting for the light to turn because I knew it was going to see me even though I was on my bike. And this woman behind me with her two kids on back all turned and said, hey, nice socks. And they had noticed my socks and the little girls were giggling at it. And they were like, you made our day with your great socks. You know, those are the interactions that you have when you're on a bike in the city and when other people are on their bike in the city. And, you know, I have wonderful memories of raising my children. My daughter is now 20. My son is 13 of them. They We've ridden bikes since they were able to up a helmet on their head and they both did little scoot bikes and you know the the moments of joy when they could stop on their scoot bike and force me to wait while they like looked at the worm cross the sidewalk you know i mean you experience so much more of life when you're walking and biking um, that you lose out on when you're in a car and and getting the opportunity to share that and see other people experience that and realize kind of that possibility you know i, I feel very fortunate to get to share this with other people and help other people find this joy in their life. I have to stop myself from smiling weirdly at people on Beach <laughs> Avenue. I, I go up and down Beach Avenue bikeway multiple times a day. And when I see a parent with their tiny child on a bike or people riding side by side, a couple talking or, you know, even the Lycra roadies barreling down there with plenty of room to pass, it, it just makes me so happy. And, you know, I've made so many friends stopped at the lights on bike lanes in Vancouver and, you know, you see the same people passing the other way all the time and uh, you know I'm on high there terms with them and uh, it's really impossible to be unhappy and disconnected from your community when you're out on your bike on the bike lanes all the time. Yeah and I'll tell one other story there's this because we talk a lot about families and kids but there's the, been this woman who has this wonderful she's in her 70s and has another adult tricycle and it's a bright yellow, my favorite color. And I had seen her because she rides on this tricycle through town with her dog attached to the bike. And so she, you know, this woman in her 70s on her yellow tricycle with her dog along. And I have pictures from her of her from behind, but I had never gotten a chance to meet her. 
And then I was out in my, you know, on my front stoop the other day and she rode by and I said, hi, I said, do you have a second? And she actually was able to stop and I got to meet her and I got to talk to her and right, like if she had been in a car that never would have happened, but you know, it, it, it enabled a chance for me to meet her and hear more about her story. And, um, you know, again, it's like it, just creating ways for us to connect in our community. There is an advocate in San Francisco, his name's Vernon Cheney. He talked about the concept of people speed that when people are walking and biking or taking public transportation, that they're moving at the speed of people. And so they can notice things around them. They can talk to people around them. And, and that has stuck with me ever since, that that is a profound concept. That is like one of the benefits and the joys of walking and biking and using public transit that I think people don't even realize is there until they do it. And then there's this amazing thing that happens. Yeah, that goes along with the combination of the scale, the human scale, people speed, our built environment meant for people, not for higher speeds, not for uh, larger than, than human scale. Um, it's very profound. And I think we need to just simply go back to our own scale. Yeah, that's one of the things that I push about our school street. It's really building community in our neighbourhood because it it does make the street safer, not just by excluding um, the pollution and danger from um, motor vehicles, but it also gets more people on the street and for kids that are walking to and from school and just playing and um, having the freedom to wander around their neighbourhood. It just means that there are more eyes on the street because there are more people attracted to be out on the street, you know, we're all looking at out for each other's children and, you know, we're congregating on the street because during the pandemic, it's, you know, safer to meet outdoors. We're just helping to stop social isolation. You know, I was volunteering the last couple of days on our school street and um, we've had lots of heavy snow, which in Vancouver just shuts everything down. And, you know, I've helped to shovel crosswalks I've helped a parent to carry their kid's wheelchair over a snowbank. I've helped a woman with mobility issues get through snow on her walker. I mean, that's a whole different topic is failing to clear sidewalks of snow. But, but you know, having people out on the street helps everybody. Well, I think this has been wonderful and perfect conversation. I think this is something that probably needs to happen more often. So we'll definitely do it again. And thank you, Lucy, Ricardo, Karen, and Luke for being on Bike Talk. Thanks, Thanks for having us. It's really great yeah. to talk to everybody. Thanks, everyone. Great meeting you all.